Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Puma Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Rafe Bartholomew, and you're listening to Episode 4 of The Global Bounce, brought to you by Puma Podcast. So I know everybody feels this way, but sometimes I swear I was born in the exact best time and place. 1982, New York City, just in time to catch a taste of the gritty metropolis that came before me, and just before Manhattan turned into part Disneyland for tourists, part playground for the 1%. I know, nostalgia's a hell of a drug, and you could probably tell I'm triple dosing as we speak. Wherever you're from, wherever you grew up, I'm sure it was the best time and place too. But I came of age in New York in the 90s. I bought Nas's Illmatic on cassette tape the day it landed on shelves in 1994, playing it every day on my hour-long subway ride to and from school. A few years later, my older cousin brought me to the legendary music club Tramps to see A Tribe Called Quest perform the group's farewell show. Well, at least before all the other farewell concerts that would follow. Our summer youth basketball tournaments were played outside at the cage, the famous bandbox of a court squeezed between chain link fences above the West 4th Street subway station in Greenwich Village. When we played, we wore shorts from Olaf's, the trend-setting basketball uniform shop in East Harlem that kids all over the country recognized as the sign of serious ballers. When the movie Above the Rim came out in 94, we saw actors like Dwayne Martin wearing the same kind of shorts we wore, and Tupac Shakur and Bernie Mac filming scenes outside of courts we had played on. Excuse my language, but we thought we were the shit. Now, looking back, I still can't help but feel proud of where I'm from. But I've also come to terms with the truth that so many of us come up with some mythology about the circumstances in which we grew up. Whether it was in New York or Hong Kong, Paris, France, or Paris, Texas, São Paulo, Manila, or São Paulo, Brazil. But even now that I'm a little bit more mature and I've got some perspective, there's still one experience I hold on to that only basketball lovers within a couple years of my age can say they felt too. We were kids in the summer of 1992. When the dream team played in Barcelona. Do you remember, or at least can you imagine, 10 years old, head over heels in love with the game, and just starting to get an understanding of what it means to play seriously? Every season, imagining your game is like that of a new college star or NBA rookie about to make a mark on the league. For me, it went David Robinson, then Larry Johnson, then Chris Webber. But the dream team. Even a hot stuff little New Yorker like me knew better than to imagine myself on their level. Michael Jordan just months after his second straight NBA Finals MVP, Magic Johnson somehow back on the floor less than a year after his shocking announcement that he'd contracted HIV and was retiring from the NBA, Larry Bird playing what would turn out to be his last minutes of competitive basketball before announcing his own retirement. They were immortal 
along with every other NBA star on the Dream Team. The first group of U.S. pro basketball players to represent the country in international play. After the ban on professionals in FIBA tournaments was lifted in 1989. More than three decades later, I still have the plastic Dream Team cup that came with my supersized McDonald's value meal. Two cheeseburgers, fries, and Chris Mullen. I wish I got his jump shot too. And honestly, I don't ever plan on letting that souvenir go. The Dream Team is one of those basketball stories every fan thinks they know like the back of their hand. And as far as the broad strokes go, they're probably right. That summer and the 92 Olympic basketball tournament in Barcelona, from Sir Charles Barkley's famous line about Angola to MJ's shrewd decision to support his Nike sponsors by covering the Reebok logo on his Team USA warmups with an American flag during the medal ceremony, feels like it's burned into my memory. But that's the tricky thing about memory. It can fool you into thinking you know more than you actually do. Is Charles Barkley's uh, press conference line about, uh, I don't know nothing about Angola, uh, but, but they're Angola's in trouble. In trouble. <laughs> uh, is that the most famous quote in USA basketball history? It probably is. And once again, I remember Will Bond and I must have talked about this for an hour. And we're trying to figure out why it was so goddamn funny. And the funny thing is, I think I might have misquoted him in a book, but the quote is actually, I don't know anything. He actually mm. didn't say, I don't know nothing. I think he said, I don't know anything about Angola, but Angola's in trouble. I think the fact that he repeated Angola makes it funny. That's Jack McCallum, longtime writer and editor for Sports Illustrated magazine and author of some of the best books ever written about the NBA including Seven Seconds or Less, Golden Days, and of course, Dream Team. The beauty of Jack's book on the 92 Olympics is that it takes a subject every hardcore basketball fan swears they know everything about, and then proceeds to unveil detail after detail that you either forgot or never even knew. And now, thanks to Jack, you can pretend you knew all along. It starts with the role Jack played in coining the name Dream Team. Like he says, he doesn't quite deserve all the credit, but it was his SI cover story in February 1991 that birthed the phrase. This was in 91. They hadn't picked the team yet. And you got to remember this was pre-internet, definitely pre-social media. And so I remember being astonished that this hadn't gotten more publicity. That it was like, it was sort of like almost, now we're talking about January, February of, of 91, that nobody was really talking about it. Because I think there was this feeling that not everybody was going to sign on to this thing. It was the middle of the NBA season. You're, you're thinking about the Bulls and the Pistons and the Lakers, and you're not thinking about the Dream Team. And I said to my editors, for the All-Star break, I'm going to pick a team that if this Olympic thing goes through, that I think the five guys that should be on it, and they should be the starters. I mean, we couldn't have 15. We could only have five. So believe me, it wasn't easy <laughs> to put together as none of this stuff is with these guys. But I eventually got uh, Michael, Magic, Carl Malone, Charles, and Patrick Ewing. I didn't include Bird because Bird had announced at that time, I'm not doing it. My back sucks. I can't. Anyway, long story short, we got these guys together. And 
the moment we got them together, it was down in Charlotte to shoot the photo. And it was this madhouse when when these five people got herded into this room. And naturally, it's All-Star Weekend, so everybody's buzzed up anyway. But it was some phenomenon was going on. So I wrote the story that weekend. And the story in the lead, the first paragraph, had the word dream. It said, it's a star-spangled dream. Could this dream come true? Something like that. I'm not quoting verbatim. So I I did not put together, and I've said this a million times, I did not put together the word dream team. But as so often happens at Sports Illustrated, and I was an editor in there, so I know how this happens, you toss around ideas. Well, this thing's going on the cover. We had this great photo. Well, I wasn't there, but well... A uh, team of dream, uh, all-star serade, uh, you know, all these things were being kicked around. And somebody, and I, nobody even remembers who, said, dream team. And they go, okay. <laughs> and they, they sent it off. And it was like, it was sort of like this idea needed a handle. It was sort of like a, a public relations marketing campaign had begun, you know, oh, It's the dream team. And I never claimed later on somebody wanted to sue me. You stole that from me. I put those words together in a jigsaw puzzle 30 years ago. I I, I go, I I never claimed to be the first person ever to use. And I didn't even do it, you know, to have the words dream and team together. But that's what happened. And I was a, a fortunate part of it. And I can't take more than... 25% 25% credit. The person that came up in the office with Dream Team can take another 25%. And the rest of it is just pure serendipity, the way it took off. Pure, pure serendipity. When Jack's Dream Team book came out in 2012, it grabbed the attention of NBA fans by reporting new details about some of the long protected secrets of what's considered to be the greatest basketball team ever assembled. How Michael Jordan made it clear that he wouldn't play if the great Detroit Pistons point guard Isaiah Thomas were on the roster. Or exactly what went down in a never-before-seen heated scrimmage the Dream Team played in Monte Carlo before the Olympics. But now, in 2023, what stands out to me are all of the stories Jack weaved into the book about unsung heroes and forgotten contributors who made the fever dream that was the 1992 Olympic basketball tournament possible. And that starts with a Serbian basketball legend named Boris Stankovic. The FIBA Secretary General, who oversaw the admission of professional players into tournaments like the Olympics and the World Cup. Or, as Jack likes to call him in the book, the meat inspector from Belgrade. The name of the guy who is sort of responsible right. for this, who is Boris Stankovic, who was a Yugoslavian official and the president of FIBA, more and more he's going to get pushed to the background because as the years go on, it's more and more going to be the U.S. lost in 88. So now we wanted to kick ass and not, you know, and that is not what happened. This idea of pros playing in the Olympics went back to Boris Stankovic in the early 80s. He was a citizen of the world. He looked at basketball as a global inclusion. Nobody looked at the game like that. The NBA giving a crap about the Italian basketball league. I mean, the only 
connection was people that had washed out of the NBA went over and had some great careers. I mean, my good friend, probably my best friend in the business, Mike D'Antoni, made a whole life over in Italy after not quite making it in the NBA. Nobody knew that. You know. So, But Boris was one of these guys. Boris Stankovic said, the NBA has to play in the Olympics. There is no way we can learn without having the best players from the best league in the world. There's no way that's going to work. And when he first presented to David Stern, it was sort of like, hey, I, dude, I got enough problems. You know, this was when the NBA was not the $10 billion operation it is now. He was still wrestling with stuff. Time goes on, 86, 87, 88, we lose with a bunch of college kids who really were overmatched. I mean, even though they had David Robinson, it became evident, you know, this isn't an upset. (laughs) We weren't as good as they were. So that softened the ground and Boris worked everybody. Boris twisted arms, ultimate backroom negotiator. And what people forget was when the final vote came, the United States still voted against it, although that was half bullshit because they knew it was going to pass. Russia voted against it. And that's it. Everybody voted for it. And what happened in the Olympics was exactly what Boris Stankovic realized, which was the game grew because these Tony Parker's 10 years old and Dirk Nowitzki's 10 years old and Mano Ginobili's 10 years old, and that's not their exact ages, but they're looking at this and they're going, oh, no, we'll never be as good as these guys. They're looking at the game going, well, this is the same game we play, except they're so much better. They, you know, they pass and go away. They screen. They hit the open man. They do the things we do and we've been talking about. They just do it at this high level. And certainly athletically, they did it at a high level, which maybe is going to take us a while to get to. And that's what happened. So the biggest misconception of this whole thing is Boris being forgotten on behalf of this rah-rah, the United States uh, finally decided they were going to crush the opposition. So good old Boris, we owe him a debt. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Another key figure who looms large in Jack's book, but who isn't quite as well-remembered in the gauzy Dream Team narratives, is coach Chuck Daly. Maybe it's because his career as an NBA coach ended in 1999, 
Or maybe it's because he died of pancreatic cancer in 2009 and hasn't been around to tell his part in the Dream Team documentaries that have been made since then. But it's easy to forget the pivotal role that Daly, who's best known for coaching the Pistons to back-to-back -back NBA titles in 1989 and 1990, played in the Dream Team's success. Or maybe, as Jack says, Daly was the perfect coach because he knew how to stay out of the spotlight. Probably when people look back, they will go, well, who's the coach of that team? Must have been Pat Riley. Oh, must have been, uh, you know, think who Chuck beat out for that competition. And now this is the time that it was. This is uh, 1990, 1991. Pat Riley had won five championships and he was on his way to looking like he was going to win one in New York. Larry Brown was still the genius of geniuses. And if he wasn't the genius of geniuses, Nellie was, Don Nelson was. This was the kind of guys, and all of a sudden they get Chuck. But what's interesting about Chuck is that Chuck Daly had won the NBA championship in 1989 and, and 1990. So they were two-time champions as they're picking this team. And Chuck Daly had enough diplomacy, had enough political capital stored up, had enough personality that somehow he got away with coaching this team with nobody from his team on it that won two NBA championships. It's astonishing that someone, you know, did not inflict physical harm upon Chuck. And one of the interesting things that I always recall from the book was Bill Lambeer saying to me, had this team been selected a year earlier. Now they're doing the picks right. in 1990. Mm -hmm. The Pistons are just kicking the snot out of the Trailblazers. They beat them three times in Portland, I believe, to win the 90 right. championship. They're on top of the world. Had that team been picked around then instead of a year later after Michael and Scotty had knocked Isaiah mm -hmm. and Joe and uh, Mark Aguirre and everybody else off the mountain, I'd like to see them keep Isaiah off the team, and maybe even Joe Dumars. And that's a very interesting observation because right. that would have been tough. And everybody says, you know, I don't know whether we're going to talk about Isaiah and Michael, but by 1991, you could make the case. The Pistons had gotten embarrassed by the Bulls. Right. This rampage that Michael had begun in 1984 was now complete. He's Moses on top of the mountain. Scotty looks like maybe second best player in basketball or the third. And by the way, now that I'm thinking about it, Chuck Daly also beat out Phil Jackson. I was thinking of that too. <laughs> so they needed a guy who wasn't the story. And I love Pat Riley, and I think he's a great coach. But Pat had a way of being the story a little bit. Nellie was the story. Larry Brown was the story. Phil, in his own way, with his interesting biography, was the story. Chuck was not, you know? My ultimate Chuck story is I did a story on Chuck a couple of years earlier, and he gave me the number of his high school coach back in Pennsylvania. I called his coach up, and he answered the phone, and I said, hi, coach, uh, this is Jack McCallum from uh, Sports Illustrated. He said, I'm not interested in any magazines, and he slammed down the phone. <laughs> he thought I was selling him a magazine. I mean, the idea that uh, somebody was going to be calling up about his guy, you know, I called him, no, no, you don't understand. I'm doing a story on Chuck. Remember Chuck? 
So Chuck was that guy that had picked up the broom and had swept the high school gyms and had that sort of aura about him. At the same time, he was a semi-Riley figure. He was a blue suit. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a moment before. The Pompadour. Oh, yeah. Oh, unbelievable. And before the 89 or 90 finals, one of the games, myself and Dave Dupree are sitting on the end seats by the Pistons bench. And Chuck comes over, was a way of blowing off steam. This is right before the game. And he goes, he leans down and he said, do you notice how this little blue accent in my tie brings out the suit? You know, it was like a kind of a goof on himself. So Chuck was kind of a style guy, you know, and before, you know, Westbrook and all those guys really brought style into the game. But NBA players, with some exceptions, uh, you know, Larry Bird being one of them, Stockton probably being another, style you know, mattered to those guys. And Chuck had himself a kind of personal style. And that really helped sell him along with the fact that he was a great coach willing to stay in the background. True to the name, the dream team, that mystique, it remains somewhat ephemeral. Fans accept that it was the greatest collection of basketball talent ever assembled on one team. But explaining exactly what elevated the squad over other great U.S. Olympic selections like the 1960 group led by Jerry West and Oscar Robertson, or the 2008 Redeem team led by LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade, and Carmelo Anthony, is a slippery task. I asked Jack, and he said timing had something to do with it, suggesting that the Dream Team's mystique would be hard to preserve in the age of social media. The rest, that was Michael Jordan. There were television contracts. You know, one of the interesting things the late, great David Stern did was Stern actually had a bunch of these really shady television deals back when he's trying, you know, with the, he had some Italian guy. So, so there were flashes of these guys, but it seemed to be exactly the right amount of appetizer level. They're flashing by their screens like a Saturday morning cartoon sort of. You know, it's a cartoon. It's a fantasy. And that's how they really existed. So far as international marketing, by that time, I suspect Michael was, I suspect he was selling shoes overseas, but not like now. So it was this, to use the word that's now become a cliche, and Sebastian Younger used it best in the perfect storm, but it was this perfect storm. It was this idea that We've seen a little bit of these guys. We've seen a little bit of all of them. Michael's the king, but there's a couple guys, you know, right uh, behind them who were once king, Magic and Larry, and all these guys that want to be king. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're going to be together. And so the cumulative effect of them together was well beyond the individual people that they were. And then Michael was sort of the Roman candle that set it off. He was, Mike, Mike, Mike Wilbon, I remember we were talking, and Wilbon says, uh, I think he was the most famous person in the world in 1992. I said, well, Clinton was president. Yeah, but I, I don't know. There's no way to measure that, but I think he was the most famous person in the world. Okay, well, let's say he was in the top five. <laughs> you know, you've only seen these traces of him. And now they're going to be in living color together. The only way I can describe it was the 
effect of them together. And it, it continued to surprise us because I said something in the book about I had seen this reaction in this qualifying tournament in Portland when Cuba, you know, they ran out for the first time and Cuba stops practicing and takes photos. I had seen all that, but it still wasn't ingrained in my head. And when we got to Barcelona, I said, well, you know, it was a couple of days before the Olympics. Maybe I'll go over to the hotel. You know, maybe I'll get the PR guy or, you know, it was not going to get Michael, but maybe I'll get Carl Malone. will come out to dinner. Or Charles will have a beer or something. And I'm three blocks away from the hotel and I can't even move anymore. And this had even surprised me. And what happened during the Olympics was that it never, it never stopped. It never became anything else. And the games, as the games become increasingly, well, they didn't become increasingly irrelevant. They were moving toward the gold medal, but everybody knew what was going to happen. So I described it being more like a theatrical production that you sort of knew where the script was taking you. But each day, a couple of the actors are going to improvise a little bit. So maybe that's what you work. But I think in retrospect, that is what surprised me the most was that it just kept on going. It never stopped. Can you get us tickets? I remember some Japanese film crew wanted to follow me around. I said, what do you want to follow me around for? They assumed like I was, you know, hanging out with the dream team the whole day or something. <laughs> no, no, you know, I'm going to lunch, you know, and then I'm going to take a subway to the game. You know, it never stopped. It never got lessened. And it's now 31 years later. And it's sort of, I'm still, you know, I would teach college classes. You know, I haven't done it the last couple of years, but I would say to them near the end of the semester, why do you still remember Jordan and Magic and Bird so much when you have LeBron, Steph Curry, who's one of the most remarkable players in the history of any sport? I'm not suggesting they're forgotten, but why do you remember this? I'm now teaching kids that weren't alive, never mind having seen it like you did when you were 10. They just said, and some kid described to me, it's like an Arturian legend. It's like some, Jordan exists as some legend. I mean, obviously it has something to do with retail, I suppose. You can still buy his sneakers. But the team just continues, which is why you're talking to, why I'm not forgotten, let's face it. That's why you're, you're still talking to me, but it still goes on. Still goes on. So in the United States, we have the dream team. In the rest of the world, if you're lucky, you have a golden generation. What's the difference between a dream team and a golden generation? Well, the dream team is about as close to unbeatable as a basketball team has ever been. Yes, they lost a tune-up game to that college team led by Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill, and Chris Webber. But Jack's book makes it clear that Chuck Daly and the Team USA coaching staff might have been eager to put a thumb or a fist on the scale to favor the collegiate players in that practice game in hopes of lighting a competitive fire under the NBA greats. And boy, did it work. In the Olympics, the Dream Team won by an average of 44 points per game. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Daly didn't even have to call a single timeout during the entire tournament. A golden generation is different. 
A golden generation is the Argentine national team, with the likes of Manu Ginobili, Andres Nocioni, Carlos Delfino, Fabricio Oberto, Pablo Prigioni, and Walter Herrmann, winning gold at the South American Championships in 2001, 2004, and 2008, winning gold at the FIBA America Cup in 2001 and 2011, winning gold at the 2004 Olympics, the only time since 1992 that Team USA has fallen short of Olympic gold, and claiming numerous silver and bronze medals at the regional and world levels in between. A golden generation is Spain's former national team core of Pau and Marc Gasol, Ricky Rubio, Juan Carlos Navarro, Rudy Fernandez, and Sergio Rodriguez falling short to Team USA in the 2008 and 2012 Olympic Games, but winning gold at the World Cup in 2006 and 2019, with Eurobasket golds and silvers peppered in between. The Dream Team would eat any other golden generation team alive. But for so many reasons, aging stars like Magic and Bird, the overwhelming star power and hype, the Dream Team could only exist for a single tournament, a moment in time. A golden generation can last a decade or longer, and it can also be relative to a team's circumstances. I spoke to the Serbian coach Raiko Toroman, who has helmed national teams in Iran, the Philippines, Jordan, and Indonesia. And according to him, the Iranian national team that he put together in 2007 fits the bill. It was really a golden generation because before that, Iran was not on the map. Uh, Iran didn't win any medal. Coach Raiko's Iran team was nothing close to the golden generation that Spain and Argentina put together in similar time periods. When Iran made the Olympics in 2008, they went winless. When they made the World Cup in 2010, they won only one game. But that team, led by 7'2 NBA center Hamed Haddadi, surrounded by outstanding supporting players like point guard Madi Kamrani, wing Samad Nikabarami, and the do-it-all power forward Oshin Sahakian, dominated Asian regional competitions for the better part of a decade, starting with their FIBA Asia Championship in 2007. Under Toraman and the coaches who followed, Iran won gold at the 2007, 2009, and 2013 FIBA Asia Championships, plus bronze in 2015 and silver in 2017. That means they medaled in every Asian championship except one between 2007 and 2017, and they won it all three times. American fans and folks who rooted for Spain or Argentina or France in those years might scoff at Iran's relatively meager accomplishments, but ask anyone in the Philippines or China or Lebanon or South Korea how it felt to be thwarted year after year by Haddadi blocking shots and sneering at the crowd, by Kamrani picking your point guard's pocket and dropping in two easy points, by Nika Barami's nuclear first step on the perimeter, or by all the time Sahakian out-hustled an opposing team's entire defense to secure an offensive rebound. In Asian basketball, these guys were a dynasty. First time I came in Asia 2007 in Iran, and when I was in a plane, I was afraid what I can expect, it, how I will adjust for the different culture. But after one month, I saw that I have a deal with great people, educated people, that they have a character. Uh, I start to work with the players. They were in that time like soldiers. If I said, hey, guys, go, we are going, everybody, to hit the wall, they will do that. That was a really 
exciting time for me to uh, teach and to coach this generation of the player where it was uh, Samad Nikha Bahrami, one of the best players in the history of Iran, uh, Mehdi Kamrani. It was a brother of Samad Aydin who died after Tokushima in a car accident. Hamed Hadadi, who is still playing, you know, he is still in China, in Sichuan. Hamed Afak, uh, Oshin, uh, Amir Amini, Jawad Dalari, who is now the president of the Iranian National of, uh, of the Federation. And it was really golden generation. We didn't expect that we could win FIBA Asia in Tokushima. We had a tough group. It was a Philippine national team. Jordan, China, and uh, Iran. Uh, we won all three games. Uh, after that, in a semifinal, we won against Kazakhstan. In the final, we have a Lebanon, and uh, we are qualified for the Olympic Games first time in the history of Iran basketball. And I said in that time, my biggest success was that uh, basketball was on the first page of Iranian uh, newspapers. We came on the first page of all the sports newspaper, which uh, it's something unbelievable that they have uh, around 30 sports newspapers in Iran. And mostly it's a football, and after that a little bit volleyball and uh, basketball. It was a great time in Iranian basketball because we are qualified for the Olympic Games. We were participating in China 2008. The accomplishments were even sweeter because when Coach Raiko took over Iran's basketball program, no one expected much. He helped build the infrastructure and expectations for success. And then the talent of a golden generation carried them to the promised land over and over again. They had a size, they had a character, they have individual quality, but before that they were not a team. And my point was, to working hard with them and to make them the team, that each player know the role in the team, because that was the most important, chemistry and to everybody to understand the role. We had a, a big guy, Hamed Hadadi, who was an extremely talented player, but a little bit lazy in that time, and it was a, a big challenge to put him in a system of the practicing, first of all, because uh, he don't like to practice, but uh, he likes to play the game. Then to choose uh, the leaders, uh, you know. Before that, they didn't have a leader. And I put uh, Samad Nikha like a captain of the team. And that was the great choice, you know, because Samad was a really leader. Out of the court, in a court, on a practice, he was practicing like crazy. He was uh, doing all the drills, 120%. And he showed other players how to work and other players were following him. We had uh, two, three good point guards, Mehdi Kamrani, Amir Amini, Jala Dabari. We have uh, one player who was not never in the national team before, Shin, who was amazing team player. His individual quality is not that high. He is uh, playing on a power forward position. He was undersized position four. But the guy who has a great heart, uh, great character. Then we have uh, good shooters like Hamed Afak. Uh, and uh, in that time, 2007, it was also brother of Samad, Aydin Nikha Bakrami, who was uh, position three, amazing shooter. You know, 
And uh, the most important thing was to make a chemistry and to give the players exactly the right role. After winning the 2007 FIBA Asia Championships and qualifying to represent Asia in the 2008 Olympics, the Iranian team even managed to score a win over Coach Raiko's native Serbia. And if you listen to episode two of this podcast, you know how good Serbia is. And Iran beat them in a pocket tournament teams were using to prepare for the Beijing Olympic Games. On the Diamond Bowl in China, that's a tournament before the Olympic Games where the champion of Europe, of South America, Asia, they were participating. We beat Serbia, we beat my country, with Teodosic, Krstic, uh, Dudajevkovic was a coach. That was an amazing time. Nobody can imagine that we can beat Serbia. This game was broadcasting in my country, and uh, I was reading the comments after the game. One uh, supporters of Serbia from Belgrade said, if I died yesterday, I will never know that in Iran that they play basketball. Let's say something like that. And we beat them. You know. It was an amazing time. But the point was, what I want to do with the national team was to play as much as possible games with a tough opponent to improve the team. And that was, in the end, I was criticized with some people in Iran, some journalists. But in the end, it was very useful and Iran started to be a very powerful basketball country in Asia. When I spoke with Jack McCallum, I asked him what he thought the difference was between the dream team and a golden generation. You know, it was the first time that these guys were in the Olympics. And I think it was the magnitude of the main people that, you know, Michael, to me, stood alone. But the magnitude of the next group of people, and they've sustained it. And Charles being the best example. Charles is one of America's most famous cross-cultural heroes 40 years after he got drafted, you know, out of uh, Auburn. So, and the other thing, you mentioned the uh, other teams. It's funny that guys like Ginobili that I've talked to about this and Dirk and some other guys, I've never detected much, even with LeBron and Kobe and those guys. Kobe says we can beat them, yeah. But I've never detected a lot of jealousy. You know, some of them might have thought they were jackass behind their back or something like that. But I think that everybody seemed to realize how these guys pulled it along. I think they're, I've never detected anyone go, ah, they're just overrated. You know, Germany couldn't shoot back then and all that. I've never heard too much of that. And I think that their importance in history, at least the kind of internationalization of the game, the kind of cross-marketing of the game, the kind of messianic spreading of the game, I think everybody understands how important that is. And it does. it seems almost invulnerable to the petty jealousies that are inevitably going to come across. Well, yeah, your golden generation. Well, F you, our golden generation's better than your golden generation. That doesn't seem to happen with the dream team. And that explains why you're still talking to me. That about covers it. 
I think it's also that the Dream Team could only exist in the context of Team USA, a rotating band of American standouts from the collegiate players who dominated Olympic basketball in every tournament but 1972 and 1988, to the pros who've only failed to win gold once since 1992. Congrats again, Argentina. A handful of players have represented Team USA in more than one Olympic and World Cup competitions over the years. But in general, there's not much continuity from one Team USA roster to the next. Amid that much historical success, it's hard to pick out a single golden generation. Only one team in one moment does, the Dream Team. As NBA players competing for Team USA, they were the first and best, singular and irreplaceable. They were a Hollywood blockbuster performing on the grandest stage with a limited run that will never be repeated. I bet that sounds pretty sweet to listeners outside of the United States. But remember that it also means American basketball fans have never, and perhaps will never be able to root for a golden generation. How can a singularly great U.S. core emerge and dominate for a decade over time when the country sends a different crew to the World Cup and the Olympics every two years? And no matter who they send, they almost never lose. History has given American fans hardly any option but to take gold medals for granted. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. This idiot gets the Dream Team, the Redeem Team, and even a bunch of no-named teams USA that still won Olympic and FIBA gold. And yet here he is, about to lament the fact that he doesn't get to root for a true golden generation. How American, right? Thank you for listening to episode four of The Global Bounce. Again, I'm Rafe Bartholomew. The Global Bounce is a Puma podcast production. This episode was produced by Nina Toralba and edited by Mark Casillian. Additional research by Geraldine Pascual with creative consults from Trisha Aquino, Siege Tantenko Malolos, and Carl Javier. Maraming salamat po.